0: This is a a wonderful day for all of us here at the White House. It's a great pleasure to welcome the Taoiseach here. Uh, uh, Bertie Ahern has given great leadership to the people of Ireland and to the peace process. Uh, This is his first St. Patrick's Day here since assuming office, and we're very grateful for uh, his presence.
1: On the traditional march, which was my first visit to the White House on St. Patrick's Day, 1998. Uh, it was only three weeks out. We had briefed, as you did every year, uh, you, you briefed uh, all of the groups in the, in the White House where we were going. And so President Clinton, when we gave him the outline, gave him the possibilities, gave him the minuses as well, said anything he could do, he would do.
0: This is the chance of a lifetime for peace in Ireland. You must get it done.
1: In this episode, we recount the ups and downs, the tears, the triumphs, the tantrums in those last few days and weeks in the spring of 1998 that took us up to that
2: all important Easter. I suppose one must lower one's sights, so 70% chance of success, 30% chance of failure.
3: The challenge won't end if this issue is resolved in these next few days, because this is only a phase we intend to be pushing on for more change past this.
4: Inside these gates, you have scores of IRA men, and we're seeing tonight the jackpot of what will happen if this deal goes through.
2: And if the Prime Minister wants a deal, he better get here fast. I'm Bertie Hearn.
1: Taoiseach of Ireland from 1997 until 2008. And this is the story of the Good Friday Agreement as I remember it. Episode 6. Deadline. When I returned to Ireland from Washington after those St. Patrick's Day celebrations, it was very clear the pressure was on, thanks to a decision made by Chair of the Talks, George Mitchell. Tim O'Connor, part of the Irish
5: negotiating team, remembers the moment we all found out. If you recall, George Mitchell pulling us together for this bombshell moment uh, where he convened everybody. I think all the delegations were, were there sometime in second half of March. And he said, I think his speech was something like, I've been with you now for three years. It's been fascinating. I have listened to your stories. They're really interesting. And I'm sure there are a lot more stories where they came from. But in the meantime, a son has been born to me in New York. And I would like to see him again before he goes to college. So I think it's time that we started moving towards drawing these talks to a conclusion and reaching decisions uh, on our discussions and therefore I am setting a deadline for our discussions of Thursday the 9th of April which is Holy Thursday I think it? which is a few weeks away and everybody, do you remember there was this sharp there was a sharp intake of breath and people saying decisions Deadlines, <laughs> and but I, I think that was the that was the starter pistol, wasn't it, for the final push then? And I don't think you probably slept much from that time onwards. Well, I think it,
1: it, while I wasn't uh, consulted or agreed, and at the, the time. Yes, actually, I, that's right. I never
5: asked that. Tell us no, that. No, How no, did no. you feel? Do you know the moment I'm talking about, no, don't no, you?
1: I, I, I got word from, from some of the officials, maybe, maybe you, that, that he had declared the, the time. I, I knew, I knew that, that Heather, his wife, had had a, a baby and I, I knew he was anxious to get back, but I didn't realize that you know him going back was going to be the end of the talks. I, I think it, it was a shock, wasn't it, it though? It, it was a shock. <laughs> but I, I think what what, what is... Did do it, it, it very quickly. We all had to start that's bringing, right.
5: No, it galvanized. We, it have to,
1: we had to go back to our working papers, that's right. And then um, yes. I don't think we'd any break. That was the 20th of March, I think. So we, we yes, we had so no about, break then so for about, 18 working days or yes. 18 working days, including yeah, Saturday and Sunday. Bit,
5: yes, that was the really intensive period, yeah. Then.
1: And, of course, we had a poll. poll which said that the public in Northern Ireland believed we would 5% chance oh, of success. Something like that, wasn't yeah, it? Like, sure. So
5: that's what I'm talking about, the pessimist charter, yeah, well, you know? Well, that definitely was. So if you're asking, like, how many, you know, do you expect these talks up on the hill up on the, to be successful? And something like 90%, 95% people said no. But no. well, that's how much faith they had in yeah, his party, you know?
1: So what brought George Mitchell to set this deadline? Here's the man himself.
6: It was on the flight from uh, Dublin back to New York in uh, late February that I decided that we had to make some major change. When the talks were first established, the prime ministers, Blair and Bruton, had set an overall deadline of May of 1998. But nobody regarded that as a firm deadline. I felt that unless we accelerated the deadline and made it, Firm and unbreakable, clear for all to see, that we'd never reach an agreement. They'd been trying for two years, there'd been no serious progress. I talked to DeSastin and Hockery, they were in agreement. But you'll recall with, and we then when we returned in March, we spent most of a month getting the parties to agree. It was very difficult. There were eight political parties, two governments. So each time somebody made a change, you had to go back to the beginning and get the others who had already agreed to make the change. So it took about a month. It took actually longer to get the agreement to have a firm deadline than the actual negotiations at the end. But uh, that was when I first felt a sense of hope. What led me to that conclusion was that Oh, de and I, as the independent chairman in the talks, had no authority to impose a deadline. The deadline had to be agreed by everybody, by both governments and by the eight political parties that remained. And the fact that these eight parties agreed to the deadline, to me, meant that they were serious about getting an agreement. I think it was based in large part on fear. Fear of the horrific violence that would resume on a widespread scale, probably more widespread than during the previous 25 years of the Troubles. And so they were concerned about that. They did not want that to happen. And we said to them, if if this breaks down and conflict resumes and hundreds and perhaps thousands of people are killed, this is all you will be remembered for. You've spent a lifetime in public service, but nobody's going to remember anything else you did. This is what they'll remember, that you failed. And they felt that way. They felt strongly. They did not want that
1: violence to resound. I think it was a very risky strategy, I, and I think he did it for, you know, because he he was getting tired that we were going around the, the issues and and not making much progress. So while it was a risky strategy, it it did get people to focus their minds. And there were so many issues uh, to deal with. So as we come into those last few weeks, the question is: Was it possible to square the, the amount of circles that we had? I think there were. You know, there were useful discussions and maybe sometimes productive discussions. But there was also enormous amount of rhetoric and enormous amount of going back and things. And of course, one of the big things that I know people around the world find it always hard to understand when we talk about the, the Good Friday and those last eight or nine months, that unfortunately the people around the table, um, to put it out, as very, very mildest, didn't like each other. And in many cases, as Tony Blair often said they seemed far happier at night uh, when you had a day of literally roaring and shouting uh, and no agreement on anything. Well, I think I suppose it, it, it's good to take the two weeks, um, the, the week leading up to what was Holy Week and then the, the week itself. And the, as it happened, Tony Blair, was chairing the European Union Assam Summit in London, uh, they had to chair, Assam was the Asian countries and you know, bringing together a huge, a huge block of countries from around the world. Uh, so Tony Blair and I were together all week and we were able to meet in the morning and in the evening and even at lunchtime, documents flying back and forward even though he was chairing the meeting. And George Mitchell, on the phone to George Mitchell, conference calls with George Mitchell, and we were. Trying trying to make progress that week, and I think we had made some progress. George Mitchell had committed that by the Friday of that week he would put out his papers, what he saw as the compromise for final discussion. And because Tony Blair and I were not agreeing on things, we had a lot of problems about North-South, um, there was problems between the parties, the UUP, also the Unionist Party, uh, SDLP hadn't agreed on Strand 1. Tony Blair and I didn't ever got around to Strand 3, um, but there were issues around policing, demilitarisation that we were we were touching on. So, as we got to the end of that week, George Mitchell unfortunately was in a difficult position that he had to tell the parties that he hadn't got his paper which he was working up with John de Chastelain and he wasn't in a position to be able to circulate that. So, that weekend was a difficult weekend. We came back from London on the Saturday, you know Tony Blair was in London and I think we decided that somewhere over the weekend if we were to make any progress at all the only way we could do this was to go to Belfast, bring our teams to Belfast and to camp in strand buildings and and see if we could use the week productively.
7: Tony had been um, advised by the civil servants in Britain that he shouldn't uh, allow this timetable to happen. We shouldn't have a deadline. This is Jonathan Powell, chief of staff to Tony Blair. But he was determined to try and stick to a deadline once we set it. He didn't want to um, let them off the hook because uh, he thought this could just drag on forever and ever, as, as usually happens in talks in Northern Ireland. And he was calling you about whether we should go and not go and we weren't at all sure what to do. And then in the end, he just said, right, we're going to go. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. off we off we headed. But it was pretty high risk, as you say. It was uh, not at all clear that, that this was going to work at that stage. When we flew in, he originally intended not to talk to the media because he thought, you know, he had nothing really to say. He was going into these negotiations to see what he could do. But we walked into Hillsbury, you know, this great grand palace that the Brits had. And, uh, and all the TV cameras were there just filming coming in. He thought, I can't not say anything. So just as we got inside... Uh, Alistair said, yeah, you better go out and say something, and he didn't give him any time to think, so Tony walked straight
5: back out and said... A day like today, I mean, it's not a day for sort of sound bites, really. Um, we can leave those at home, but... I feel the... I feel the hand of history upon our shoulder in respect to this. I really do. Which <laughs>
7: became one of his most famous soundbites, which came clearly out of, uh, out of nowhere, and Alistair and I were convulsed in giggles. We couldn't believe that he was... Uh, uh, that he'd come up with this uh, contradiction in terms but that that was uh, it was really it was uh, we are travelling more in hope than expectation that we'd get somewhere when we went over
1: Mark Durkin, who went on to become deputy first minister in the Northern Ireland Assembly was part of the negotiating team for the SCLP that party played a key role in trashing out the strand one issue
2: relations within
1: Northern Ireland with the unionists
2: in the negotiations we were still going around in a lot of circles on a lot of issues Uh, For instance, in Strand 1, which was about arrangements within the North, you know, the position throughout ninety-seven and then early ninety-eight from the Ulster Unionists was, we don't want an executive, we don't even want ministers in the North, we want a committee structure and people from different parties may be either secretaries, might be called secretaries of those committees or chairs of those committees, but they wouldn't have a lot of executive power in their own right, uh, etc. And of course, one of their reasons for not wanting ministers or an executive in the north was so that they could say they hadn't changed from their <laughs> opposition to executive power sharing, as in the Sunnydale Agreement. And also, they wanted to prevent the basis for having a joint ministerial body uh, on an all Ireland or north south mm. uh, basis. So we were, and of course, we were advocating not just ministers, but we were advocating that ministers would be appointed by De Haunt uh, or some other distributive formula and they of course would then say that's exactly why we can't have ministers because they would then if people from different parties had executive power in their own right there would be solo runs there would be rogue ministers and, and all the rest of it all, all these uh, and of course they were challenging us to say your system of doing this you know there'd be a democratic deficit of that and we were having to say right how can we answer some of these challenges but we were still just going around in circles the deadline. I understand your reservations about once a deadline has been set, and we've seen that so many times in the process. But at the time in the talks in early '98, the SDLP position was very much to encourage George Mitchell to set a date, to set a deadline, uh, to move things on. And I remember, George cautioning uh, us to say, "Look, I'm Humpty Dumpty. I can jump only once, <laughs> and if I jump at the wrong time." I will land, and there'll be a mess. But I'd be out of here. But you'd be left uh, with that mess. And so, you know, one of George's great acts then was timing uh, that he did uh, time when things were right for uh, for a deadline. In the talks, we had moved into this format of instead of it being three, you know, and then the individual strands, three at the table and three behind from each party, we moved into a smaller crop. We had moved into a tighter two from each party format and that was going across uh, the different strands. I can remember at one of those meetings it suddenly occurred to John Taylor that we're now discussing strand one issues and the Irish government is in the room Mm -hmm. and I remember uh, Sean Mm -hmm. O'Hagin delivering the line I can assure, I can assure you that when Strand One issues are mentioned, we will avert our eyes, and and it was left uh, at that, and that they, they accepted it. But part of what we were trying to do was that we would have something uh, that would lay down a benchmark that would be the purposeful agenda that we would be coming back to and there were signals at that time from the loyalist parties they wanted something like this they wanted to be able to show uh, that there was something happening uh, in the talks others had misgivings in particular Sinn Féin were quite opposed to the idea of producing something like that because of course they didn't want to be part of agreeing a paper that pointed to the possibility of an assembly of institutions in the north Uh, their position was not to make any submissions on strand one, but just keep referring to their strand two, all Ireland uh, position. And if anything in the strand one negotiations, they would have spent their their main contribution kind of would have been almost like heckling the SDLP, saying, "Oh, you shouldn't be agreeing to that, and you shouldn't be shouldn't be talking about such a thing."
1: Meanwhile, north south relations, strand two, was a sticking point as well. Here's Tim O'Connor
5: strand to the whole issue of how are we going to how are we going to frame relations between North and South and the island of Ireland uh was the was a huge stickler point. If you if you set out where what were the differing positions coming into it. Um, but I suppose unionism saw North-South relations as a Trojan horse for a United Ireland. So this was a kind of a conundrum that anytime you you know if unionism is to engage with us in Dublin and the thing, then they're actually on the slippery slope towards United Ireland. So David Trimble to you is, is is trying to, you know, hold it off uh, and, and and basically the, the minimum relationship, then the British government would probably, I think Tony Blair was probably neutral enough on that. He'd go by whatever. But you couldn't be neutral on it because, you know, from an Irish government perspective, you were, you know, you were implementing the 1937 constitution, which is the, the constitutional imperative of the reunification of the country. Therefore, both at a practical level and a symbolic level, out of the these negotiations, you needed not just that there could be practical cooperation between North and South, but you needed a symbolic expression of that relationship between the two parts of Ireland in some institutional way. So that was a kind of a, a bottom line for you. And um, the, we're now into the week of George's deadline of Thursday the 9th and We, I think on the Monday, he, if you recall, sent around a first draft of what he was proposing in terms of the totality of the agreement, which was the first time we'd have seen. Now, frankly, you and uh, and Tony Blair and the two governments had worked very intensively on all of that. So we knew what was going to be in that. And that's where the controversial piece came because in the Strand 2 part, the North-South relationship, we were reflecting the maximalist position here. The maximalist position will be there'll be a, be a north-south institution and there'll be cross-border bodies with executive powers. And th- let's face it, there was a lot. The Ulster Unionist, David Trimble and John Taylor in the public record said, you know, he wouldn't touch you with a 40-foot barge ball. So effectively, it looked like George Mitchell's first draft was dead in the water and then you know we're now into Tuesday there's an impasse you're either you you either have to make a call that we have to walk away here uh, or else we're can we make an adjustment that doesn't actually uh, end up being capitulation. I recall you on the Wednesday, you called us all together in the Irish government delegation and you said uh, that things are very difficult and you even thought that, frankly, the the chances of success are, are fairly slim looking at it from the point of view of the Wednesday, now one day before George's deadline. But you said to us that there's a responsibility uh, to, to give it our all and to try and that you were going to have one more go. You were taking George Mitchell's frame um, I think you called it a cake, you know, like a, a thing, and 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 you'll take out the pieces, you know, and work on the pieces that we need to work on, and then put them back in, so that if it breaks, it breaks on the totality rather than just the salami. To, I think you use the word salami, you know, so which I thought, frankly, was a very that was a very smart way to kind of rather than pulling the whole thing apart, we'll just do it very in a very. So we took the north south piece out, and 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 then you know. Fairly big changes, let's face it, were made to those on the basis. And the key to that was, so there will be a North-South Ministerial Council where ministers from North-South will be formally in an institutional uh, setting uh, with with formal responsibilities. And then there was, um, you, you made a big call there in a way, really, to say that actually now the detail of the number of bodies and what the bodies are going to be. The detail of that will be for further negotiations down the line after the which have to be agreed by the 31st of October which is because you you wanted to put a if I can do the phrase backstop on it uh, you know rather than just being definite and I suppose and the end then back and forth over the next 24 hours but that that broke the deadlock but I'd like to hear your you know you had you had had a big call to make there you know.
1: well well, the call had to be made but I I was happy uh, once that we didn't change our constitution until after that date because you remember we we had to. I I knew what I had to do, but I was worried that if we had agreed um, the constitutional changes, um, then how could I reverse the position if they didn't honour uh, the strands too? So as you remember, I That's think it was right. David yeah, Byrne point. came up with yes. the with the clause that that those changes would be made before we, we changed the constitution yes, that that kind important. of re- resolved yes
5: that's that. your dilemma of how you can see yes. things mm. like a pig in a poke almost yeah yeah i hope you don't mind me say it. it was a sad week for you as well obviously your, your mother passed away sadly on, on the monday so then you're trying to you're trying to cope with a very difficult personal situation and i don't know how you did that but
1: I I I think it, like all of these things, you, you, you regress the, some of the things that happened. Um, my mother hadn't been, you know, it wasn't in the best of health, but there was no question that we, we nobody thought she was going to to, to pass away. Um, I came back to Dublin from London on the Saturday night and intended to drop in. Um, uh, unfortunately, I didn't, so that so that was a, a real kick to the system. Uh, when she had a heart attack early on Sunday morning. I was meant to be at a meeting with Martin McGuinness. That meeting went, by the way, I should have dropped back up to the house because I was 100 metres away, but didn't. Uh, I'd gone on to a meeting with Seamus Mallon and John Hume uh, when I got the phone call that that she was in the hospital. So so the Sunday was difficult, but by, by Monday morning I had got calls from Bill Clinton and uh, Ted Kennedy and Chris Dodd and half of the world. So, you know, you 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 were you were up and at it. So for Monday morning, um I I was absolutely focused on the, on the week ahead. Uh, and I knew it was a week and I knew it was four or five days. So from my part of my, my point of view, I was across the detail of this. I knew I couldn't hand over the file to somebody else, um, and I knew that I had to keep at it. So for Monday I had to brief the parties um, in the south, all the leaders of the parties in the south who were who were supportive of, of what we were doing. Uh, I was dealing with the Irish officials, uh, those that were already in Belfast and those that were in Dublin, so that we, we got our ducks in a row for the final session of negotiations. And it, it, it proved a bit tricky because George Mitchell, who I had huge admiration for and have, uh, George Mitchell said to me that Uh, He knew it was difficult, but he he really felt I had to come to Belfast before my mother's funeral at 7 o'clock, to be there for 7 o'clock on the Wednesday morning uh, to agree with the UUP where we were uh, so that they wouldn't walk away from the talk. So uh, that was tough. The day was long enough. And I had a practice of always coming back to Dublin. So, uh, But we had that meeting. We had the meetings from 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock. Back to Dublin and then back up for the talks. So it it, it was a, a a trying week. But if this failed and it could have failed, like like Sunningdale failed and the Anglo Irish Agreement failed, you know this could be gone for for another another decade. So uh, I think that motivation and it, it, in fairness to Tony Blair, he was a great partner to work with, and I got a lot of sympathy from you know from all the parties from 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 everybody. So I I think my my mind was 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 clearly. Focus and even the fact that we were not getting any sleep see, in some ways helped because you you were just you were you were just dealing with the agenda right through and you know even when you know it looked as if during the night you know at times different parties um David Trimble who I ended up a great friend of um could be touchy and could be difficult and you know could hit bouts of roaring and shouting um though a very very clever man. From Sinn Féin coming up with lists of 80 items or so in the middle of the night saying they weren't happy with this list. Um, So there were trying tests but, you know, Mo Molan who was suffering with cancer was there.
8: In the morning,
9: you can all be very jolly and positive and everything looks wonderful. By lunchtime, you're all a bit more doubtful, and by the evening, you can be completely fed up. And I think that goes for people in the talks process too. It moves on very quickly. There'll be ups and downs in the days ahead, because it's going to be tough. It's not going to be easy.
1: I think there was great camaraderie that, listen, this isn't going to go on forever. We've a few days' work to do. And the officials on all sides were terrific. Uh, the officials, you know, who. Are not, are not politically involved in these things, but, you know, have given a lot of time, uh, had stuck at it all night. And even when Sinn Féin gave us the 80 questions, we divided those out within the Irish team. And it was it was my view that we had to answer every question, regardless of what we thought of half of the questions, but that we would actually do as comprehensive a reply. And in fairness, I think to Sinn Féin, they were impressed with that that effort. And it did move, I think, the agenda.
3: We welcome and we have welcomed the distribution of the paper, but it's like stew—you know, you can have all of, the, all of the ingredients, but you have to cook it properly.
1: As we got to those last days, you know, there were huge delegations in castle buildings. You know, every every party had their key people. Um, they're nearly their parliamentary parties, their advisers. Um, other than that, it, it was it, it was difficult enough. You know, there were so many personalities, big personalities, great personalities.
3: We look forward to a a very hard three days' work, uh, and hopefully to the conclusion of the uh, talks
1: uh, in a positive
4: on um, Thursday.
1: David Andrews was the Minister for Foreign Affairs for Ireland at the time of the negotiations.
4: I'll never forget those three or four days leading up to the finality of the talks. First of all, on the Wednesday and Thursday night, we were up all night. And people were trying to get to sleep. And I remember the night before the talks were finalized, the one of the more prominent members, who shall remain nameless, uh, pulling two seats together, falling asleep and falling off the chairs onto the floor. So that was the sort of atmosphere. People were tired. They wanted to get the thing done with. And uh, I think that the uh, most important person at that moment in time was Trimble. Trimble... He, he was really left on his own he was coming and going and his party he didn't know whether they were with him or against him and uh i think he was going to funk it but he didn't to, to his undying credit uh, i think that blair and clinton and yourself got in touch with him but the phone call from clinton i think uh persuaded him to do the deal and he did at the last moment he did the deal and consequently uh we have the good friday agreement
1: president clinton he said anything he could do he would do and uh, we sparingly obviously were, we're going to use him tony Blair and, and i had agreed that we wouldn't involve him at all until we were together to we were you know at a particular stage where we thought uh, we needed help and really what we were asking to do uh, was to 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 talk to the parties explain to the parties the opportunity explain that you know this this was a world news story uh, to bring the end to a conflict the biggest conflict that was going on in Europe at that time that you know the killing and the mayhem had to stop somewhere and he 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 did that i mean he, he stood up for two nights. Present the United States is always a lot on his agenda um, but particularly that last night when we really needed him when you we were afraid people would, would you know wobble because they had to go back to their parties
0: Let's talk about what animated the cause When I came uh, and spoke on the college green to about 100,000 people in Dublin and then I went to, to Derry and to Belfast to turn on the Christmas lights it was clear to me that the younger generation were sick of this they wanted to change and that more and more older people were willing to take a chance so the problem is as george mitchell said in one of his pithy phrases it's not just about the decommissioning of arms you have to have a decommissioning of mindsets and i realized that as a friend to all the irish people and a friend to the United Kingdom that the only thing the American president could do is to speak as a friend and be trusted and promise to maximize the benefits and minimize the risks of peace because there are no perfect solutions in life and you don't control everybody.
1: So I think having the the power of the president of the United States ringing uh, conveying messages of uh, cajoling and, you know, promising support from the United States, promising uh, e- economic support and uh, helping in, in, in where we would go from, from here if we could get an agreement. It, it, was, it was massive and uh, he did that for, for two full nights. I came back to the talks on Thursday morning at 8 o'clock for the, for the breakfast meeting um, in Hillsborough and, and that was it. It was negotiations then right through till five o'clock on the, uh, the Friday night. So uh, the, the, last, the last, whatever it was, um, round of negotiations, well, by the time we got back to, to Dublin, it was well over 36 hours, was just one roller coaster.
6: We in Sinn Féin uh, want an agreement. But uh, as I speak to you now, there is no agreement. And the reason for that is because unionists are blocking agreement. Unionists are trying to change important aspects of Senator Mitchell's paper.
1: It's hard to believe that even on that last five, six days, that it wasn't possible to bring the leaders of, say, two or three parties together to be able to trash out things, that it all had to be done through Tony Blair and I, that we literally had to listen to one party, go to the other party get the arguments for, go back, you know, and other than the UUP and the STLP sitting down to sort out strand one, there were very little meetings of the parties pulling together. Monica, Monica Williams and, and the Women's Coalition were enormously helpful because they tended not to take either side. They tended to move around um, the tea room as, as much as they could. Uh, and they did keep the mood up, and because otherwise people were sitting in their own corners, and they 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 genuinely tried to engage people, pass messages around,
9: yes, we were going between the parties, and you played a blinder, as did Tony Blair that week, and you in particular, because I remember you getting the word that your mother had passed away, and we saw the toll that that would take us on that news, but also attending a wake, going to Dublin, come back for a a funeral, and having that big issue of the north-south bodies on your shoulders. After John Taylor had made his famous soundbite, I won't touch this agreement with a 40-foot barge pole, and everyone thought, this is a disaster. I remember going out and saying to the press, no-one's going back to war over this document. Because we had read the draft that Monday and I thought we could still resolve it. That was a complicated issue. I, I look today and think how many people are talking about North-South bodies. But that night it was huge. um, And it was, you had given up articles two and three of the Irish constitution. And in turn, there had to be a quid pro quo. Then... No one wanted the blame for pulling the thing down. Sinn Féin at the start of that week were not signing up to a partitionist assembly as they saw it. And that was a big issue, but the quid pro quo was around prisoner releases potentially being members of a coalition government, all of these big, massive ideological changes. And I can remember that discussion about prisoner releases from five years to one year to two years. Mo Molin played a blinder. She met me in the corridor bare feet, no wig, because she found it uncomfortable. I haven't gone through chemotherapy myself. Later, I understood exactly what it would be like and how she threw off her wig and she had an intravenous drip in her arm. Um, it was quite something to see somebody negotiate the way she was doing that night. And it was Sinn Féin that she had to do most of the work with. And she said to me, they're working me over. She was exhausted. And I was able to say to her from our, my meetings, they're on board. At that stage, they had come round. I know the STLP were annoyed at them because they wanted to discuss the future workings of the Northern Ireland Assembly, <laughs> and I remember there was a bit of antagonism about go and chase yourselves. You haven't come nearest, and now you're coming in these last hours to talk about Northern Ireland Assembly. Mm. But there was humour too, because mm. the 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 building was starting to fill up, mm. and the loyalists were bringing in lots of their comrades. Mm. Uh, who were ex-combatants, hopefully ex-combatants. Republicans were doing likewise. People were carrying in beds, little beds to, to sleep on. I wish we had had some. And um, we sent out for food because everyone we were told Holy Thursday was the last night of the canteen. And this poor fellow lived and it, had been snowing with a balaclava to prevent the snow from on, on a bicycle on his head. Uh, the balaclava on his head came in freezing and security let him up and Breach Rogers let a roar out of her saying, and they haven't even got the manners to take their uniforms off. <laughs> and he whipped the balaclava off him and said, uh, Mrs. I'm only bringing pizzas to the women, which was us. <laughs> um, and that's when I realized, wow, look, these guys are bringing in everybody. The, the building's filling up. Something's happening. Mm. The tension was huge. And people were running up and down to you. You were on the third floor. So was the British government. Sandra Mitchell was on a different floor. Um, We were on the second floor. Unionist Loyalists and Lions on the bottom floor. You were flying between up and down, up and down, along the corridors, in and out of rooms. Um, Because there was no hard draft of the amendments, the keeper of the pen, as I say, or the keeper of the computer disc, which were the officials and you in the governments, knew exactly what was happening. Nothing's agreed till everything's agreed. We had to do that piece of work of running and running and not stopping in order to get the information about what was still on the table, what had fallen off the table, what was no longer in brackets, what had now been decided on the hard issues. And then of course, as you know.
4: And we're seeing tonight the jackpot of what'll happen if this deal goes through. Inside these gates, you have scores of IRA men armed with illegal weapons and the and the police will do nothing about them. And yet, to me, an elected representative, I am not permitted to be it.
1: And then of course Ian Paisley. Uh, leader of the DUP was outside in the snow and the cold of the night, the dark of the night uh, outside the gates uh, ranting and chanting at us at, at, at guys um, to get out and go home and all the other things that he he, lo- he likes saying and on the other side uh, you had the PUP and David Irvine and his colleagues, so it, it, at least for the first time in my life I, I saw that there was a clear division uh, on the unionist side and
0: I- well, I wish you would walk out.
2: You're not taking <laughs> <laughs> no. it. this Shame is the intelligence here. that is negotiating the future of Northern
7: Ireland. Right. These are the smart people who couldn't even get one person elected. This squad
4: enables me to come into these grounds. Wait, you do for two years? didn't you do it for, two years? Do it for two years? No. People
3: wanted you in here to fight for me, you wouldn't do it. You hadn't got the guts.
1: But the people who were shouting them down were the PUP. That's right. But that must have been a tough decision for the um for the PUP to, yeah. to actually go out there and to you know to, to really take the, the rug from under his feet.
8: Yeah. There there was there was a growing anger, I think, within the PUP and within Loyalism that the DUP and the way the DUP had treated the PUP like something they would scrape off the sole of their shoe.
1: This is Don Purvis.
8: And David, I remember, had been up, up ladders in a in a a hut doing a live interview with the BBC at the time and um, Gusty and I were inside the talks uh, building watching this unfold on on live TV and David had been given an interview um, and he'd just been saying that um, whilst the DUP wouldn't acknowledge the PUP, he was quite familiar with the the, um, colour of wallpaper inside some of their homes and Uh, in other words he was saying I've been in their homes I've talked to the DUP but yet they won't recognise the PUP now Uh, and as he was given that interview of course the DUP had marched Ian Paisley had marched um a pile of supporters up to Carson's statue, at on the Stormont estate. He'd got he'd marched them all up. He'd got there, and then he told them all to go home. And there was boos and and hissing and everything else when he said them go home. And inside the building, loyalists were saying, "Oh, here's the grand old Duke of York. He's doing it again. He's marching them up to the top of the hill, and he's marching them down again." But he did. The people left, but he and a delegation from his party then arrived at the the gates. Of, of Castle Belton's demanding to be let in and the administrator let them in because they wanted to have you know their five minutes of fame in, in the press hut so the, the press gathered and it started to be shown on TV and the next minute members of the PUP um, were in the back of the press hut um, heckling Paisley and telling him his time was done that he was yesterday's man that they were dinosaurs you know that they basically needed to go away and David came out of the press hut at the top of the ladder slid down the ladder like a fireman straight over to the back of the press hut and started physically pulling PUP people out of the press hut to say you know let them have their 5 minutes let them have their 5 minutes mm-hmm. i think for me that was a real a real turning point that was when loyalism said to the DUP you're not going to use us again you're, you're not going to wind people up so that they'll go out and do your dirty work. You know, cause people used to say that Paisley was the, the best recruiting sergeant there was for, for paramilitarism on both sides. So that was a real turning point, I think, in yeah, the talks. Indeed. And a lot of, um, you could feel it in the air, actually inside Castle buildings yeah. that Paisley done us a favor coming up there because it made, it made loyalism and unionism more determined than ever that we needed to reach this agreement. Just as we thought we'd got it all together,
9: boom, the Ulster unions had a meeting from Hale, and we thought it was all over on the Good Friday morning.
7: The cat from Outer Space lands in a moment on BBC Two after a further progress report on the Northern Ireland peace negotiations from Nicholas Witchell.
5: In Belfast, the Prime Minister's official spokesman has said that there are some difficulties still with the agreement which is trying to create a new future for Northern Ireland. The eight political parties taking part in the talks are studying a final draft of the 67-page agreement. Very shortly, they're due to meet for a final roundtable session when it's thought some further amendments will be tabled. Mr Blair's spokesman said that they didn't expect any insurmountable problems, though it may, he said, take a matter of hours to resolve them. According to a final draft of the agreement, seen by the BBC, a new Northern Ireland Assembly is being proposed, which, in consultation with Dublin, would set up a new North-South Council. We'll bring you more details here
2: on BBC Two as they develop.
1: I think from early morning, probably, it it, it was a a, a cold morning, actually. It was snow falling. It wasn't sticking, but there was... uh, it, was a, it was a really frosty morning, so we were we were feeling that we would probably get there by lunchtime and the word from the Ulster Unionist party started filtering through by mid-morning that there was problems
4: on their side. Because of the delay in bringing out the document over the last six, seven hours, I suppose one must lower one's sights, so 70% chance of success, 30% chance of
10: failure.
1: Now this was a a, a big shock because um, at at that stage we had had a huge amount of meetings the night before when the UUP and the STLP agree things that gave him momentum to agree a lot of other things. So um, we, we thought, even though I had spoken to David Trimble, who did go for a few hours sleep, and I I, I literally walked down the corridor to to his room, and you know he 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 was worried, but. I realised there was nobody else going, following or going into the room, or so I he was going to go, So I felt things were, 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 were all right. Um, STLp were, you know, copper hoop, um, Sinn Fein were, were getting there on prisoners. So you know there was a good sense. Uh, and then then the, the word started coming out that um, that uh, Jeffrey Donaldson, we Jeffrey, as David Trimble used to call him, uh, w- was reacting. And, uh, and and that, that there were there was problems in in, in, in the camp, so that, so that was a concern mainly because we didn't know where I was worried that maybe some of the heavies and the heavies in those days were Ken McGuinness, John Taylor, and the McGimpseys and you know Nesbitts. You know they were, they were all they they were the key guys. Uh, Jeffrey wasn't, um, but we didn't know the strength of that. Then there was a gathering. In the in the after lunch, where Tony Blair had given a letter, which we didn't know about, but you know, was no great deal, um, you know, kind of guaranteeing that he he would continue to commit himself to to where things were going, and and that there was nothing that there would be sold down the, the river yeah, on, and um, that letter came in under the door, I think, during, during their meeting, uh, and that was a, a big. A, a big plus for the UUP, and as I understand this then, I'd, I'd never heard a contradiction that Ken McGuinness and John Taylor uh, spoke up um, and saying this, this was the time, uh, and that gave Trimble the, the strength. And then David Trimble uh, sent word to Tony Blair and to me um, that, he, that he was ready to sign. I, I didn't tell my colleagues that uh, because I was afraid something had happened between uh, between him ringing from his office and, and when you get to George Mitchell. so But then George Mitchell contacted me to say it oh, was ready to uh, to go.
10: The mood within the negotiating team, well, there were probably a few divisions within the negotiating team because Jeffrey Donaldson and two of the other younger Turks, you might call them, left in the, in the last day.
1: Dermot Nesbitt was one of the negotiators of the Ulster Unionist Party.
10: And uh, there were those of us who remained. And therefore, there were, in, in the last day, uh, David Trimble brought together the chairpersons of the various constituency parties into the talks building. We went to a separate room and he tried to explain what he wanted to do. He tried to bring them with him and there was scepticism, I remember that meeting, a note come under the the door from Jonathan Powell, are you near ready? You know, nothing like putting you under pressure when Jonathan Powell puts a note under the door, are you near ready? And here's Trimble trying to bring the party along with him, because there were those who were definitely opposed, like Paisley and all of those, and there were ones within the party who were, well, on the one hand, yes, on the other hand, no, he was trying to bring them with him. And then when we went out of the room, I remember walking down the corridor. The other members went elsewhere, but the negotiating team went down the corridor and the various parties were standing at the doors looking at us and saying, well, come on, what's keeping you? That was in their face. And David Trimble went upstairs. I don't know whether he met with you, met with Tony Blair, and maybe got a written assurance that certain things might happen. Yeah. And then he came back down and I remember his words vividly. Right, let's go up. And up we went, and we sat there, the the six of us.
1: And were the six of you the the, the front line negotiators who had been at this all that year or that nine months? Were you all at one at that stage? Was, was I, 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 I? I know. No. I know you had the problem with the wider council view, yeah. but
10: well, but, those who remained mm. were at one. Yeah. Lord, I preface my comments by yes. saying those who remained.
1: I suppose you know I, I did give I did give a letter of, of cover on the North South. Um, yes. Tony Blair gave it another issue, yes. but I, I did I did give David. A, and you give
10: it that to him when he went up.
1: Yeah, no, I did. I did give that letter. We to knew him. that.
10: We, we knew yeah, that no. was happening. That's what.
1: Yeah, no, uh, it it, w- it was important that I did because he 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 wanted to move, and I and I I I, I wondered, you know, the night before. Um, I had spent several hours dealing with different issues, and Jeffrey w- was on. David Andrews and Liz O'Donnell were on the delegation with me, and uh, I, I, I at no stage felt that Jeffrey was unhappy. Um, it, it always puzzled me what what, what issue w- w- it, that drove him out in the end. I mean, he I know he he subsequently said it it, it was prisoners, but you see. I don't think he knew what the deal on prisoners was. So it, it never stood up with me that, he, that it was prisoners that drove him out. So, or was it political expediency?
10: You ask a good question. Mm. I cannot give you an answer because I cannot get into the mind mm. of, uh, of Jeffrey Dawson. Yeah,
1: yeah that, that was really very discouraging. Jonathan Powell was in the thick of it during those final days.
7: Um, because we got, as I said, we were worried we lost Sinn Fein. We managed to make sure we got Sinn Fein on side. They couldn't sign it, but they weren't going to say no to it. And that was was crucial. Uh, and then we lost the unions. Once the unions started looking at the drafts of the agreement, of course, perhaps not surprisingly, they focused on the issue of weapons because, um, and we thought we'd get through that because there's no way we can reopen that issue. If we'd, at that stage, you know, on early. Uh, Good Friday morning, had to reopen the whole issue say, right, we're going to negotiate on weapons. we had been there a lot more than three days and three nights. So the first thing we we did was, because the unions were all gathered in a big room downstairs, um, and lots of the young members had come in, people like Jeffrey Donaldson and a lot of his supporters, Arlene Foster. And they got the draft and they were going through it and just saying, we can't accept it without uh, this, your weapons being addressed. The first thing we did was we got uh, Bill Clinton to call David Trimble. I rushed down to tell David that uh, a call was coming in. He very really nicely stood up to take a call from the President of the United States. He thought it was correct protocol, <laughs> uh, and, and and yeah, Bill Clinton tried really hard, persuading him, and telling him it was the right thing to do. Then uh, trumbull came to see Tony. Um, I think it was for John Taylor, saying look, he just couldn't sign up without anything on on the decommissioning of weapons. Uh, and then went back down to the <laughs> the big room of all the unions, and we were really stymied. We wondered what on earth to do. The whole thing was just about to fall over. And that's where Tony had the idea of, um, and goodness knows whether it was a good idea in retrospect, but uh, of a side letter. He thought, unless we issue a side letter here, giving comfort to David Trimble, we're going to lose this whole thing. Tony dictated to me while I typed onto my laptop uh, a letter, side letter to David Trimble, giving him assurances that we expected weapons to be given up as uh, government uh, started to work as as, uh, the union shared power with nationalists and republicans. Uh, I I ripped it off the printer and rushed downstairs to this big office where the unionist, where the door was locked and I couldn't get in. I kept knocking on the door and they ignored me. So eventually I stuck the letter under the door and then a young unionist by the door let me in. Uh, And I ran up to the top table where uh, David Trimble was sitting with John Taylor, handed the letter to David, and John Taylor read it over his shoulder and said, yes, that will do. Uh, So I rushed back out of the room to tell you and and Tony that uh, we got the unionists on side and we needed to move quickly. And we called the uh, plenary straight away. No air at all. No time for anyone to raise questions. Went straight into the plenary. We uh, um, uh, George Mitchell announced the agreement, uh, everyone uh, was rather emotional and tired by that stage and welcomed it.
4: We're here at the moment, first of all, to apologise for keeping you waiting, but I'm sorry to say the delay of the last uh, few hours was necessary uh, and it was justified in the event because, uh, as you will see, uh, we had some very serious concerns with regard to one aspect of the agreement,
1: while we were waiting for David Trent to make up his mind, uh, I got down to, to one of the houses and, and had a shower, which was badly needed after a few days stuck in that room. And um, I asked the RUC officers who, who were glued to me, hey, was there a church that I, I'd like to go to the Good Friday Ceremony rather than sitting around this place? So... Uh, we, we drove down to a to a, a small church and and I went to Good Friday ceremonies, uh, and got back. I was still everyone was still hanging around, so um, I I kind of felt fresh enough, hadn't been away from it, but I, it caused a bit of consternation in a in a small church me me arriving in and we had to talks because everyone had been glued to the television. So I assured them I was going back and was still looking good.
11: I'm pleased to announce that the two governments and the political parties of Northern Ireland have reached agreement. The agreement proposes changes in the Irish Constitution and in British constitutional law to enshrine the principle that it is the people of Northern Ireland who will decide democratically their own future. The agreement creates new institutions, the Northern Ireland Assembly, to restore to the people The fundamental democratic right to govern themselves and a north-south council to encourage cooperation and joint action for mutual benefit the agreement deals fairly with such sensitive issues as prisoners policing and decommissioning this agreement is good for the people of ireland north and south
1: everybody assembled into the room and everybody it was a short meeting. Uh, George Mitchell gave the the report. Um, said the agreement and all aspects were, were was agreed that it was w- with the printer ready to go. and And uh, he declared that the multi party talks were were adjourned. Uh, asked everyone to nod their consent around the table. Uh, went right around the table. Everyone consented to agreeing. Uh, exception found. Who said we'll consult and everyone knew what that meant.
11: There being no further business to come before this proceeding, it is concluded. Good luck, have a happy Easter. God bless all the people of Northern Ireland.
1: And um, then that was it. Uh, Tony Blair and I left to to go sign the um, to go sign the the, the agreement with, with one one photographer and thus um, for the part of history uh, the agreement I signed was the uh, known as the agreement of the multi-party talks uh, later on a cover was put on it saying the Belfast Agreement and, and I said to my officials um, uh, who decided it was called the Belfast Agreement and they said well, this was done by the, the Northern Ireland secretaries and I said, well, I didn't agree to that because I, t- I said, so I'm going to call the Good Friday Agreement. So that's where that issue came from.
11: It's only on the basis of equality, fairness, and respect for our differences, that we can begin to heal the deep divisions between our people. This historic agreement today enables us at last to start that
5: healing process. The principle of consent is absolute and is throughout the agreement. And the breakthrough is that that is now accepted by all North and South.
3: These negotiations and the new arrangements which result from them are part of our collective journey from the failures of the past towards a future together as equals. Our party remains absolutely committed to our Irish Republican objectives. We will continue to pursue these objectives in the months and the years ahead. And our... Philosophy perhaps is summed up in the notion of peace
11: between orange and green. We should all offer our very deep thanks to the, our three chairmen mm-hmm. who have played such a pivotal role in these talks. We owe an enormous debt of gratitude to Senator Mitchell, to Prime Minister Hulk Kerry and to General de Shastelon, as indeed to all the people of Northern Ireland and Ireland as a whole.
3: Well, I just want to endorse what John has said. Mwila, mwila, mwila bwihas. Dibsha, Goliar. Thank you very, very much for all of your efforts and for all of your endeavors. Thank you.
1: I can tell you it was a most extraordinary extraordinary thing, we, we it was lovely to shake hands to uh, to everybody and to to um, you know to wish everyone well for the for the Easter weekend that was coming up. Uh, tony blair w- was was off to to meet uh, Asner in in Spain uh, with, with his wife. Uh, George was, was, was heading back to America and, but mo- most of the people there were fairly exhausted and we're all looking forward to a good weekend and we knew of course the campaign was going to start fairly quickly there was going to be about a week's break and then we'd all be at it but I, I didn't, I, you know, we did short interviews and I went back to the, to the government jet and uh, the government jets you, 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 you were always very good at giving tea and coffee. Uh, but I got on the government jet, Good Friday and all, and the, uh, the captain produced a bottle of champagne, which I was very grateful to the Air Corps. So <laughs> I, 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 I gladly drank at least two glasses of the champagne the way back to Dublin. So it was, uh, uh, normally I wouldn't drink on, on, on Good Friday, but uh, I did that day. In the next episode, of, as I remember it... The island of Ireland said yes.
9: You can imagine how we cheered when the Chief Electoral Officer declared 71% in favour of the agreement.
1: But then... Oma.
4: It was a, 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 a bitter irony that the worst single atrocity happened after the agreement was concluded.
6: There's a bomb from about three different locations.
1: As I remember it, it's a News Talk original podcast. The executive producer is Mark Simpson. The producers, Jess Kelly and Sandra Honan. Sound mixing, Lachlan Hart. Video producer, Rory Walsh. Archive audio used in this episode was from RTE, BBC and downtown radio. You can find bonus material including full interviews, videos, a glossary of who's who in the peace process and a timeline of the Good Friday Agreement on Newstalk.com